Good morning. As we we're in Genesis 11, we're going to cover the first 11 verses or nine verses. And as we we come to chapter 11 this morning, we come to what is known as the Tower of Babel. And really, it's a story about the pride of man. And in this case, how pride then led to disobedience. And and it's interesting because of pride, it can be said that it is the enemy of God and those who seek to know God. And yet pride is very much a part of who we are as uh, men and women, isn't it? Um, I think a couple of illustrations I came across that help us to get into this is there was a man, and I'm not sure when this ran in the USA Today, but his name was John Barrier, and he didn't like the way that he had been treated in his bank when he went in to do a transaction in Spokane, Washington. And it probably had to do with the way he was dressed and it would seem from what I read here that his complaint was legitimate. In his construction clothes, he one day went into the old National Bank to cash a $100 check, and after cashing the check, he stopped by the receptionist to get his parking slip validated. It was a 60-cent parking uh, slip. And the receptionist refused, telling him that he didn't conduct a transaction and they don't validate parking for that. And so he, she said, you have to make a deposit, and when he told her then, that, you know, I'm a, I have substantial deposits here and this just doesn't seem right. Um, but she wouldn't budge. And so he asked to see the manager and the manager supported her and agreed with her. And so he left without uh, having his uh, parking thing validated. Well, he headed downtown because he felt he had been treated unfair. And he went to the bank headquarters um, threatening to take out his money if the, that manager did not apologize to him. And so he waited that day. And no phone call came. And so the next day, he went into the bank and he withdrew over $2 million in deposits. And all because a bank manager refused to humble himself and say, you're right, we're wrong, I apologize. Um, it's like uh, another example is Meryl Street, who, as you know, is an actress. And uh, this was in an interview she uh, conducted in a publication, she said, it's sort of exhausting the self-congratulatory atmosphere in which the movie community lives. It's un un unbearable. We're not that important in the world, but we certainly all think we are. I shouldn't talk about it. I mean, I'm really grateful that my work is recognized, but boy, we've gotten a little bloated. It's so grand and the outfits are so incredible and the critique of how everybody looks and the desperation of people to make an impact it really gets to me and to her credit she's admitting that hollywood can be a little bit prideful on a humorous side i found a couple stories there was a, a pompous candidate who was making a run for a making a run uh, for office and in the final days he thought he would go to a nursing home to just secure some last minute votes and his bubble of pride was burst when he engaged a very witty retiree as he approached her wheelchair he extended his hand and he asked in a very loud voice, do you know who I am? And she graciously took his hand, took a few seconds to examine his face and then replied, no. But if you stop at the desk over there, they'll tell you who you are. And of course, that's a perfect illustration. Or how about the great Vince Lombardi? Most of you will recognize that name as one of the greatest coaches of the Green Bay Packers. He became so accustomed to people asking for his autograph that one day he was in a restaurant and he could see a little boy headed his way. And so thinking he wanted an autograph, Lombardi signed the menu. And as a little boy approached, she handed him the autograph menu to which he replied, 
the little boy did. I don't need a menu. I just need to borrow your ketchup. And so, again, pride is before us. It's a real thing. And it is a dangerous thing. And we are wise when we realize that, that pride is the enemy of God and those who seek to know him. And so among the things that come out in this account, this will be one of them. Now, the chapter begins, look at verse 1 and 2. Now the whole earth um, used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And so having been only eight people to come off the ark and after the flood, of course, they would have only spoken one language. And that then continued as the population continued to grow and grow and grow. And I couldn't find out how many, but no doubt the population now is in the thousands. And it would seem that they would move from one place to the next for various reasons, maybe one of them um, being food. But they came to what now was called the land of Shinar. And it's believed that this is what is known as uh, that area west of Babylon, referred to as the Fertile Crescent. And that in alone tells you why they settled there, because it was a fertile land. And they could then uh, obviously uh, get the needed food and raise the needed food that they needed. Henry Morris, though, offers some more insight of a possibly what happened. He says the people apparently were not satisfied with any region where they had stayed until they finally reached the fertile Tigris-Euphrates plain. And by the way, that is the same area the Garden of Eden was in, but down farther, they believe. And there they settled down. The population soon grew to the point where not all of their attention had to be given merely to food production, and it became possible to develop an urban community. So again, um, it's his opinion, but it helps you understand a very likely scenario of how what we're reading about today happened. And it's interesting, there's a couple side notes here, especially for those of you who like the obscure things in the Bible. There's always some of you that will come up after service and share some interesting things with me. And here, one of them is the fact that it says that they, they journeyed east, um, as going east seems to be uh, a type of going away from God and his ways. And if you remember Adam and Eve back in chapter 3, they were driven out of the east of the garden. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord east to the land of Nod. When next week or in a couple weeks we get into chapter 13, when Lot separates from Abraham, it says he will journey to the east. And so in these incidents, going east uh, very can be looked at as a type of really going away from the Lord or going away from the Lord's ways. And another thing we should note is that as we come to chapter 11, we're not in chronological order here in the Bible. Uh, Genesis doesn't stay in a chronological order. And so probably what we're reading of today actually took place during chapter 10. And as it goes through the uh, various nations, and if you look at verse 25, you see that because it says two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And so Many feel that when it says the earth was divided, that's a reference to that the earth, um, the people of the earth were, were scattered. Verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole uh, over the whole earth. And so having come to the Fertile Crescent, and again, you can look on a map um, just east of Baghdad, and you could see that we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of square miles. The temptation uh, to settle down then was taken. So 
being tempted really to disobey God. Now they went beyond the temptation and they sought to then build this permanent home in this permanent city. And of course, like I said, that was in direct disobedience to God. If you go back to Genesis 9, in verse 1 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so now to say, let's settle, let's, and actually they're going to say to prevent ourselves from being scattered, um, was direct disobedience. The city and tower, it tells us, would be built out of brick and tar. And again, it says in comparison or as to stone and mortar. And you may not have thought, but now you can. Why? Why does the Bible even point that out? And it really could have something to do with part of their reasoning for staying there. And I'll show you that in just a minute. But mentioning stone and mortar um, probably shows that that is what they had been used to building with. But now they use bricks made of the clay in the area. And it was not um, only because... They believe the stones were scarce in this area, which it would seem to be true. We know that area today. But taking then the only material available, which they say was a, a good grade of clay to make bricks. And it's interesting, they took brick and tar. And, of course, we know the Middle East is rich in oil. And as this tar would come to the surface, tar was a byproduct of the oil that was in the ground. And so then they came up with this superb building material. Um, the bricks of Egypt, the bricks of Assyria were sun-dried, and they were not as hard, where here, when it tells us that they baked them, it means they, they made a much more, uh, the brick became much stronger. Add to that tar, which would have been a better mortar than, um, a, a better holding thing than mortar, and you realize um, that. And so, while the desire to settle and disobey really was a heart issue, it is, very possibly this helped them to say, well, let's do it. We've got these superior building materials, and maybe we can uh, disobey God and get, a, get away with it. And so this was at the heart of the issue. And remember, God had given them that command to go and fill the earth and multiply and be fruitful. And yet here we see that they're not willing to do that. And what was happening is you had a people who didn't care about God and his commands. Notice again, verse 4, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so twice it says, let us. First of all, let us build a city and a tower, and then let us make a name for ourselves. And any time you find in the word man saying, let us make a name for ourselves, you know right then something is going sideways, something is wrong. It's contrary to God. Maybe the Lord didn't mind. If they built the city, the tower could be questionable um, because he did say, go be, multiply. So if, if, if some of the people settled here, that had been fine. But when they said, again, let make let us make for ourselves a name and then we will do this to prevent us from being scattered. It really shows us the pride and the rebellion and the disobedience. And the Lord will always step in when such gets in the way of his will being done. And so that's what was happening here. God's will was going to be stopped in a sense, and God would have none of that. And the tower was also another indication that they didn't care about the Lord and his ways. Notice it says, build for ourselves a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And there's a lot of speculation about what was the actual meaning of these towers. Um, but they, they pretty well, among everything, are understood as they were not only just high landmarks for a city, but they also involved worship 
And again, an indication that if it ain't the worship of God Almighty, then something here is wrong. And so it went beyond just being this landmark. It had religious implication. And as they served and, and, and as they served as a place for God, a God, little g, whose shrine belonged then on the summit of that tower. And they used, uh, they have uncovered several of these multi-storied uh, towers in Babylon. One, for instance, was multicolored with glazed tiles, um, estimated to be over 297 feet high. And its name meant the building and the foundation platform of heaven and earth. And so that's pretty amazing to think that back then um, they could build. And you could see from the slide that it's, it's not like a smokestack tower, but these were more like uh, pyramid towers with steps, if you will. And so that would help you understand how they got it that high. And I like what John Davis says in his writings in Genesis. He says, the Tower of Babel was indeed the prototype of later, later uh, ziggurats, then it may well have registered, um, represented, I'm sorry, high-handed rebellion against um, the true God. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And so it doesn't mean that God literally and physically came down, but now seeing what was going on, he's aware of it. He then would step in and take action. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all the same language, and this is what they begin to do, and now nothing which they propose, uh, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And so it seems like with man before the flood, and now with the city and tower, there was a risk to God's will being done. And especially in the early days of civilization, that God was on a course. Remember, God is ultimately working towards man's redemption. So you and I live in a time we, can, we can't see too far beyond our time, but God can see the whole picture. And of course, in these early days, he has a plan. He knows the earth needs to get populated. And now man is going to try to stop that. And so um, he steps in. And when it says um, the whole idea about if they're doing this, what's going to stop them from doing anything? It doesn't mean they're going to be able to do anything, but it means that um, there will be further acts of rebellion. What's going to stop them from more rebellion? The answer, of course, was nothing. Again, Henry Morris says this. There have been few occasions on which the accomplishments of God, God's very purpose for the world, become so in danger that divine intervention was required. And so, again, not many of them. The flood is one. And here's another where God realized what was going on and he stepped in. And so man had said, let us build, let us make for ourselves a name. And I like what the Lord does. The Lord responds, verse 7, come, let us go down. And there confuse the language so that they will not, they will not understand one another's speech. And so... As we saw earlier in Genesis, the words let us go down um, back in the beginning when God is creating the world, let us make man in our image. Here, this certainly allows then for the teaching and the idea of the Trinity, that there's one God who is uh, exists in three persons that are co-equal in power and glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God then steps in and confuses their language, making it impossible for everyone to understand everyone else. And, and really, it was bringing forth uh, a, multiple, uh, a multitude of languages now. And, of course, that's what we have in the world today. And so very possibly, um, certain family members would understand certain family members. But in, and then in time, they would find each other. Maybe they would move together 
and then do what God was asking man to do. And so verse eight, it says the Lord scattered them abroad from from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so I'm sure the people you could imagine were confused when seemingly out of the blue, they could no longer understand one another. And it's just like here today, as we greet one another uh, in the morning, we understand. Well, could you imagine after the message, if I said, well, say goodbye to each other as you leave and we're unable to understand each other, how surprising that would be and really how confusing that would be. We'd probably stand around with our mouths open wondering what's going on. And um, and so that was kind of uh, the idea. Probably family, again, could understand family. But to all others, it would sound like nonsense. And so probably um, uh, others thought um, others were mocking them. Uh, work bosses, you can imagine, because the tower and the city is being built and it doesn't get completed, at least not in this passage. Uh, orders couldn't be understood. Workers might have thought their bosses were making fun of them. Um, their work looked bad, whatever it might be. Servants in the palace now couldn't obey um, their orders. And even punishment couldn't be carried out. Neighbors that once conversed couldn't converse. Shoppers that once shopped together and talked couldn't talk together. And Henry Morris adds, loud, incoherent arguments erupted throughout the city and full-fledged chaos eventually reigned. Uh, Finally, there was nothing to do but separate with only individual family units remaining intact. No further urban cooperation between families was possible. And so each family group had to learn how to meet its own needs directly. Eventually, if not immediately, each family became a tribe, moved away from Babel to work out its own manner of life as God had intended them to do in the first place. And so that really helps us understand then um, what was going on and how this came about and what it would have been like to live back then. And today they say there's some 3,000 plus dialects in our world. And so it's interesting that today there is this thinking, okay, that if the world could be like this, if the world could be one, you know, speaking one language, oh, how much more we'd be unified. And uh, this type of situation would be then a good thing. The truth is, if you look at the situation, and there's others you can look at too, when man does that, what you really end up with is greater and greater rebellion against God and the things of the Lord. So if it led to the worship of God, the obedience of God, that'd be awesome. But history tells us that isn't the case. And, of course, that's what we see here. Um, And really, history shows us that when that is the case, those that try to force their way upon others, that then actually very few end up with the power and many more end up oppressed and abused. And so the idea that this is what we need isn't really a good idea. And, again, it's what we see today. The more we become one world, the more God is pushed aside. Isn't it? And it is interesting, this one language thing, if you think about the Internet, if you think about computers being to talk to each other, I don't think that is the language. But it does show you that we are becoming more and more a global world. And it seems like, at least from man's perspective, that this is going to be a good thing. Um, And so, again, we know it's not. We know that one day this is exactly what the world's going to get when the Antichrist reigns. We just finished the book of Revelation, and we saw that. And so there's going to be a a power structure, the Antichrist in charge, others under him. But for the most part, 
people are going to be oppressed. Christians are any Christians are going to be uh, persecuted. And so there will be a unity, if you will. There'll be a unifying and in many cases a forced unifying. And yet it will be an anti-God world. And yet it's interesting. A day is coming when the language will once again be united. Um, have you ever thought about when we get to heaven, what language we're going to speak? Of course, English. I'm joking, okay? You know, there's a good chance it might be Hebrew. Many believe that Hebrew was the first language. And so now as the languages are uh, changed, Hebrew would have continued on, but there would have been all these other languages of, uh, as well. But Zephaniah, Zephaniah prophesied of a day in Zephaniah 3, 9, when he said, For then I will give the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. And purified lip, lips there doesn't mean lips that don't speak bad or speak perverse things, but lips that God will change. In other words, it means the speech of the people to a pure speech or a united speech. And of course, we know that's going to take place in heaven, that God is going to unite us. And so the Tower of Babel, Babel means confused, and that's what it became. And, and really, and now when you think about it, if you'll think about the Tower of Babel really as a time of disobedience and a time when man's pride got in the way. When man tried to do it without God, to ignore God's direct will, and of course, the Lord stepped in and stopped it. And notice Genesis has shown us that then, that God... And his desire to this day is to bless man and to bring to man what is good and for his own good. But sin having entered in the world, man is rebellious. He's fallen and he will not trust the Lord and thus uh, receive the good he seeks to bring to man. And so being prideful, here we see that man said, we'll do our own thing. We'll make a city. Uh, none of this scattering stuff the Lord wants. And they go directly against it because of that. And, and so the Bible says, doesn't it? The Bible says that pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16:8, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And that's exactly what we see today, that pride is what got in the way. And, you know, pride leads to many things, you guys. Disobedience, of course, is one of them. But pride leads to family uh, problems. And so often when there's things going on in a home, it can be traced back to pride. Someone not willing to be the servant they're supposed to be. You think of marriage problems or problems at work. And so often uh, pride and disobedience and a lack of humility and servanthood is at the cause of this. And so it's safe to say that pride does lead to sin. And I just want to encourage you as we dismiss today to remember like what Matthew 23, 12 says, that whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And how much better it is to humble ourselves and let God do the exalting as opposed to exalting ourselves and, make, and let God bring us down. And Pro, Proverbs eleven twelve says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. And so the choice is that we could be prideful and we could be brought down. We could be dishonored or we could be humble and God will raise us up. God will lead us and God will give us wisdom. And so, you know, as you head out, Later today, maybe tomorrow, go back and again, just think of your life, think of this passage, and just ask the Lord to show you if there's any disobedience in your life, if there's any pride in your life. And if there is, just say, Lord, thank you for showing me it, and repent of it, um, and make it right um, with God, make it right with others if you need to, and then just keep yourself 
in that place of humility, in that place of obeying God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and our time together to worship you, to study your word. And thank you, Lord, that your word is so complete. And again, this morning, we're reminded that there are dangers out there as we seek to live for you. And one of them is pride. And pride can lead to so many problems, disobedience being one of them. And so, Father, we pray that your wisdom would be ours, that we'd be humble people, that we would just trust you, be filled with you, and we'd learn the lessons that you would have us learn in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.